0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: When I entered, men crowded around, tried to lift me to their shoulders. They were too weak. Many of them could not get out of bed. As I walked down to the end of the barracks, there was applause from the men too weak to get out of bed. It sounded like the hand clapping of babies. As we walked out into the courtyard, a man fell dead. Two others, they must have been over 60, were crawling towards the latrine. I saw it, but will not describe it.
1: Welcome back to the program. There, Edward R. Morrow from CBS, describing his experience with the first American soldiers to walk into the German concentration camp at Buchenwald as it was liberated from the hands of the Nazis at the close of World War II. Welcome back to the program. With me tonight, New York Times bestselling author Rita Cosby, the book Quiet Hero, Secrets from My Father's Past. Let me pause for a moment at this point. Rita, because I have to wonder, you know, we, we think about this generation that that said so little of their escapades, of the horror that they saw and experienced during World War II, unlike subsequent generations. Back at the time, we referred to it as shell-shocked, for those that generally kind of seem to be uh, um, emotionally a bit uh, challenged by all of these experiences. Today, I suppose, uh, better educated, we might refer to it as post-traumatic stress disorder. I would suspect from the moment you opened up that tattered, worn leather suitcase and and realized the significance of the items that you were looking at, it it must have answered a lot of questions for you about your dad and and the challenges that took place in your family.
2: Oh, it it absolutely did, Craig. And and when when I saw this, I knew I had to call my dad. I knew I had to forgive him. And despite you know years of anger and confusion too you know much of it was how could this man walk out and not be emotional and as you talked about being very emotionally void and so it answered so many questions and i reached out to my dad i was i was glad he was alive i was glad he was ready to share his story and he said you know i i wasn't ready years ago i have not talked about this in 65 years he didn't even tell my mother And so he said, you know, I think I'm ready to share the story if we can honor the troops who saved me and my comrades who didn't make it back. And I also feel you're an adult now, Rita. You know, it was too painful to share as a child, you know, to let you know then. And I think I'm ready. And that's why I tell everybody, too, I hope that this book inspires other people, too, because the most wonderful emails I have gotten, Craig... And and my website is quiethero.org, quiethero.org, and I'd love to hear everybody's story because when I read them, and I read them, I I am so personally moved. My father literally, you know, uh, went through enormous hurdles, and me and my father went through enormous hurdles together, and I feel like if we can reconcile, almost anybody can because it, it almost seemed insurmountable. And I've gotten so many beautiful emails from people who have written me and said, you know I didn't I wasn't talking to my dad for 20 or 30 years and I wrote him a uh, you know wrote him in the book please dad let's talk and sent him a copy of your book and now we're meeting for lunch tomorrow wow and I've got and you know that that's uh, that is you know the lord working that is you know that is that is a higher power by far and I am so blessed that this book has been able to be a bridge builder for so many people maybe even who haven't even encountered someone with war
1: the other thing that comes to mind is you, you talk about the title of this book. We think hero, uh, a word that we easily banty about these days to which we don't assign an awful lot of of significance. And yet other words, too, that come to mind that that unfold on inside the pages of your book, Quiet Hero, as as your dad recounts the stories and talks about those that were responsible in, in rescuing him as he made his way, you know, escaped essentially there from um, uh, from that stalag. Um, words like valor and honor and sacrifice, words that I, I think to certain degrees, Rita, have largely disappeared from the American lexicon, words that most people today just going about day-to-day life and business really don't understand or think about or under, understand or, or perhaps comprehend the significance of in relationship to what men like your dad went through, not just in, in Europe and dealing with the, the torture and horrors of Nazism, but then those from other countries like Australia and Australia in England and Canada and the United States that went to places like Europe to help liberate those people from the clutches of Nazism.
2: Oh absolutely and, and, and when you talk about you use the word valor, I think of one line that my father said and, and I think it just epitomizes the integrity of, of not just my father but but the men who served with them and by the way there were women also fighting in the resistance too which is which is interesting It was one of the first times in history that women played a huge role in military operations because everybody was needed you know men women everybody was fighting for they were all fighting for their country but it, my dad told me this great line and this is at the age of fifteen think about you know it's amazing to think at the age of fifteen now you see kids playing nintendo or skateboarding craig or doing whatever they're doing at fifteen And my dad, at the age of 15, could have been snuck out of the country. His mother said, I might be able to buy you out through the black market. I might be able to find a way to get you to, you know, Switzerland, a neutral country. And my father, who was in the resistance at this time, said to my mother, no, I am staying and fighting for my country. And he gave this great line. He said, I would rather die with friends. Than live with strangers. Mm. I am staying and fighting for my country. And you think about, you know, saying that at the age of 15, knowing that most likely you were going to die for your country because the odds were certainly against you. In my father's unit, 80% of the men did not survive. Wow. So you think about, he knew he was going into a bloodbath.
1: Well, and and certainly, I mean, having having lived through initially the, the, the bombing of... Poland of Warsaw. Uh, by the time the Gen- the Germans were done with their job there, eighty five percent of all the buildings in that city were completely destroyed.
2: Oh, and, and if you look at the pictures from that, in fact, this is interesting. Where my father was fighting was in the old town part of Warsaw, and that's where some of the most ferocious and and I guess you know uh, determined resistance fighters were.
1: Now, would that Rita technically been considered uh, near, or at, or in even the uh, the so called ghetto?
2: Um, It was right near the ghetto, literally right next to the ghetto. And in fact, my father was just about 100 yards or so from the ghetto wall, his home. I mean, that's how close it was. It was literally in that area, exactly. It was literally in that area. So that's where they were rounding up all the Jews. And by the way, my father was so supportive of those inside the ghetto. My father believed it didn't matter if you were Jewish or not Jewish, if you were a good person, my father wanted to help you and was willing to help those inside even at the you know the price of his own life if that's what it meant.
1: Well, and it sounds like he got a lot of that obviously from his parents your grandparents, whom I understand you have never met, but uh, weren't they engaged in doing some stuff even kind of discreetly in the black market that, were, that was being used to assist people in the resistance?
2: Yes, they were actually helping and they were giving food, they were doing tons of things to help those and also my father's mother was a really incredible woman and I I think you, you talk about sort of where you learned your morals from. Hitler did not want anyone to practice religion, especially if you were inside or outside the ghetto. And if you were, they they treated those outside of the ghetto horribly as well. Obviously, those inside the ghetto were just you know decimated. And it's and I think it's unconscionable what happened. It's incredible and just horrific. And my father outside they were also brutalized and if my father had, at the age of 13 started writing anti-anti-nazi symbols on the ghetto wall can you imagine this? and even though you think about it, it's kind of child's play that was a death sentence in poland it didn't matter how old you were if the nazis had caught anybody writing anti-nazi propaganda on the ghetto walls of all places you, they, you were going to be killed, and they would go and like clean it off, and then my father would go back two days later and write another, you know, Hitler is a blank, or a swastika hanging like from a gallows, and it was a complete insult and used to just infuriate them. And my and my father's mother, at a, even in the height of it all, where she was not supposed to pray or practice religion, she still had a hidden altar in the basement of her apartment. And they had five bombed out apartments that kept moving, but in each apartment she kept a hidden altar and everywhere I went down and prayed for my father's safety, prayed for the country's safety, prayed for those in the ghetto. And that was the kind of environment that my father grew up in, and I and I do. I think it transcended into who he was as a fighter.
1: There's another side of the story that I want to come to when we come back after a brief time out, Rita. Um, that's an amazing one, and that is that after all of these years, sixty something years, your dad being able to travel back, and you were there with him. I, I want to have you share what that phenomenal experience was like. And if you've tuned in a bit late tonight, we are visiting in this segment of the program with best-selling time, uh, New York Times best-selling author, I should say, Rita Cosby. The book is called Quiet Hero, Secrets from My Father's Past. This is a great gift-giving idea, whether you know of someone of that generation uh, that can be honored through the stories in a book like this, um, a great Father's Day gift, as Rita mentioned, this is being used as a wonderful means of tearing down years of silence and, and, and non-communication between families, um, younger kids that never understood... Why dad always seemed to be kind of detached in a way or 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 cold emotionally this book can not only be an eye opener but a relationship restore even as this experience has been for Rita and for her father the book again quiet hero available on the web at quiethero.org that's quiethero.org we'll come back to more of our conversation new york times best selling author rita cosby as this edition of lifeline continues
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to the program and uh, joining us for an extended segment here. uh, Rita Cosby has been gracious enough to remain with us. She, of course, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Quiet Hero, Secrets from My Father's Past. Uh, The book, by the way, available through her website at quiethero.org. That's quiethero.org. You know, there are so many amazing aspects to this story from the discovery of eventually what became opening of the truth of what your dad experienced um, during World War II um, as not only a prisoner of war, but as a resistance fighter. Um, But then, of course, that leading the gateway to really the restoration of your relationship with him after many, many years. You had the opportunity at one point, Rita, to go back, uh, to take your father back to Poland. What was that like?
2: Oh, it it was incredible. And you know what, what, what caused it was I gave him back these items that we found in this old tan tattered suitcase that we talked about earlier that my mother had left behind and it turned out it was again his rusty POW tag and his fighting armband, the red and white fighting armband that was dirty and still had blood on it so clearly had been worn. And I gave him back the suitcase and I surprised him and I said, I have something for you. And when I gave him back the suitcase, my dad just held on to these items especially that red and white armband. And as it turns out, when he was fighting the Nazis, he was wearing all the, you know, they didn't have, this wasn't an organized army, this was the resistance, this was a bunch of ragtag citizen soldiers, teenagers. And literally, they would have to kill a Nazi to wear some clothes, and they wore, you know, they had, you you know, tattered clothes before that, would grab a Nazi uniform, and the only thing that would separate them from the Nazis was this armband, and it actually gave the resistance an o- and a leg up because they could get very close sometimes to the Nazis, and then they would turn and point to, "Hey, I'm a resistance fighter. I'm not one of you." And then they were able to approach him and kill them. And you think about they had—that's how close they would often have to get. So you think about how scary that must have been. This was not, you know, long-term fighting with rifles and, and tanks. My—they didn't have it, you know. So they had to go up close, and that was their advantage. And when my father saw that red and white fighting armband, Craig. He just cried, and he was holding on to it. And then he looked up and he said, you know, I wonder who survived. I wonder who made it. And I said, you know what, Dad, the president of Poland, I, just, I had just met him literally a few weeks before, invited us back. And my father said, all right, let's go back together. And the whole, my whole life growing up, Craig, my father, you know, talked about Poland as being hell, that there were terrible things that happened there, and I never knew what, and I never knew what role he played or what, or what happened, but I, I never thought he would ever in, in my lifetime ever go back to Poland or his lifetime. And when he said that, I said, let's do it. And literally a few days later, I think it was, we were on a plane to Poland, and my father held my hand when we took off, you know, and and when we landed, and it was like a child. He was so nervous, and it was, you know, there was so, it was, you know, 65 years of emotions. And he came back and got a hero's welcome from the president of Poland because he was in that die-hard fighting plot, you know, place. The guys, My father escaped through the sewers at one point from the Nazis. Can you imagine? Mm. There was no place above ground. And those fighters who escaped through the sewers, my dad was one of the last men out. They are really considered some of the real heroes in Poland.
1: Here's and, a guy that, that spent an entire lifetime, Rita, um, controlling his emotions, denying it, yes. stuffing them down. Uh, suddenly, now he finds himself sixty plus years later back to his home country of Poland. Um, I would suspect that that Stalag Stalag 4B probably doesn't exist anymore, but there are prison camps that have, that have been kept open for tourists to come and see and for people to to basically experience that we should never forget. You had an opportunity to tour one of those camps, Auschwitz, yes, in Poland with your father. What was that like for him? Uh, You know, as a journalist, you must have been watching very intently your father's reactions to the experience of going back in and and the memories that must have just been flooding so much emotion to the surface for him.
2: Oh, so many emotions. And, and in fact, Stalag 4B, some of it is still there, and some of the record books are there. Really? And we found record books of my father there, and also another camp that he was at. So well, I actually sent crews over to Germany, where that camp was. And uh, in, in Poland, where Auschwitz is, my father actually had relatives who were taken to Auschwitz. Because early on, most people don't realize Auschwitz originally was for resistance fighters. And so my father knew a number of people who were taken to this horrible place called Auschwitz, you know, in the early days, and they didn't know really what was going on. You know, they didn't see the people or they came back vegetables and would never speak again. And so when my father went there, uh, we were speechless. And my father, the minute he walked into some of the barracks that are still standing there, and it is such a somber feeling to go to Auschwitz because it's huge. And the fact that it's still there and still huge, and that's not all of it, It's overwhelming to the emotions. They're just so angry about man's inhumanity, to man, and and what happened. And my father, we walked through a barrack, and he said, this is exactly like the bed I was in, because the the Germans had everything was very uniform. And what they used in one camp was very similar to what they used in other camps, like my dad's. And it brought back all these emotions. And the other thing my dad also did was we went to a place in Warsaw where my father said he lost all emotion and my father in the middle of the fighting and remember they barely had any guns they had two guns in their unit one of them was my dad's and he barely had any bullets in it everything was scarce and my father had gotten wind through some other guys that there was a tank that was seized by the resistance, a German tank, which is a, a huge coup. Remember, they're outgunned, they're outmanned, and suddenly they get a German tank. And my father's girlfriend was going to run all over the tank and, you know, parade on the tank, along with a lot of his comrades. And my father said, oh, there's something kind of fishy. This is a little too good to be true. And he gave his girlfriend his Luger and said, just take this, this is his gun. Just take this, just in case. And he walked away. He was heading back in another direction, went a few blocks and suddenly the ground shook, and the tank exploded.
1: It mm. booby-trapped.
2: It was booby-trapped, and everybody on the on the tank was killed. 500 people were killed. It was taken to a busy town square. 800 were injured. There's now a huge marker there in Poland symbolizing what happened. And my father ran back looking for a piece of his friends. <laughs> and my father said, this is in the middle of fighting still. And he ran back, and he said, when he went there, there was no trace of anything course nothing of his friends nothing of his girlfriend nothing of his luger everything was evaporated and he was just walking there in rivers of blood and my father said at that moment he said he had to compartmentalize he had to be able to keep fighting because he wanted to keep fighting for those who had just perished for his country and he said i had to block it out and when we went back to the scene together my father just broke down in tears craig it was so emotional for me and he looked up at me and said, I'm so sorry. He said, I did the best I could as a father. I tried, but after, after this moment, I had no emotion in life. Nothing fazed me. And losing a family, you know, decades later, I couldn't be affected because I lost hundreds of friends in an incident. And, you know, and of course I said, I, I forgive you, Dad. And, and that was a very dramatic moment for me and a very powerful moment. And, and after that moment, I have broken through with my dad. My dad is truly a different man today than he was, you know, years ago.
1: Indeed That's, so, and that, that, that takes there. us back full circle to that observation by, a you know, fellow um, television journalist uh, Tom Brokaw. This indeed was uh, our greatest generation. Rita, thanks so much for the book and the time and the insights, and uh, for your dad, uh, when you talk to him next, uh, again, thanks to him. Uh, he may not regard himself as a hero, but he's the, a hero in the eyes of many of us.
2: Thank you so much, and, and I hope everybody gets the book. It's quiethero.org quiethero.org and it's quiet hero secrets from my father's past and and i hope it uh, the journey inspires everyone as much as it's inspired my dad and i
1: undoubtedly so again new york times best-selling author rita cosby the book quiet hero more information on the web at QuietHero.org. dot o-r-g
0: and now back to lifeline with craig roberts when you
1: think of it So much of life has become temporary. There are those of us with a little bit of gray around the temples, old enough to remember the fact that, well, today, no longer do you collect gold watches after, say, 25 or 30 years of service to one company. We no longer raise families and retire in the same home where we spend ultimately 50 or more years in. And our marriages, well, they no longer make it to what was once a typical golden anniversary. Many of these challenges in the way life has changed, particularly related to marriage, goes down to one core issue that is becoming increasingly more challenging under the changes in society today to establish and maintain solid marriage relationships. But before we completely give up hope, there are some important key steps that you can today implement in your married life to change things around in a most dynamic and God-honoring fashion. Joining me now is Dr. Greg Smalley, Executive Director of Marriage and Family F- Formation at Focus on the Family. And Dr. Smalley, great to have you on the program.
0: Hey, Craig, Thank you so much for having me today.
1: Well, isn't it amazing how so much of life in just, you know, maybe a generation or two has changed so dramatically. Remember dad working for the same company for 30-something years. They still live in the same house that I was raised in when I was a kid. And today, all of this has changed. We don't keep our jobs as long, we don't live in the same house as long, and sadly, we don't stay in marriages as long either.
0: Yeah. It, it's true. And I tell you what, you know, way back in the 70s through the... the I, I think the one of the biggest things is the whole no-fault divorce. And uh, I, I don't think people really realize um, how much that has really hurt us. And, and, and I, that's why I'm thrilled as a country that right now, you know what, Marriage is 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 in the news all over the place, and I'm hoping that part of the outcome will be that we really, you know, uh, that that we realize like Hebrews thirteen four says that marriage should be honored by all that that we really learn. As a country, again, how do we honor marriage? What is that going to look like?
1: Here's the absolute irony: you talk about no fault divorce, and what we're really saying is, well, if it's nobody's fault, then it must be everybody's fault.
0: Right? Uh, we
1: we all play a role in this. And, and toward that end, you've come up with some key steps that I think we can go to school on today to help people better understand the important relational moments. And you know, we know that that good marriages take time and they take work. But if you begin to break it down into all of the the incremental elements, a lot of this stuff, quite frankly, is just good common sense if we just take the time enough to examine it and begin putting it into practice in our daily relational lives.
0: Absolutely. You know, I, I, I believe one of the best things that we can do for our marriage is that we've got to learn how to work through and manage conflict. You know, there's a lot that we need to do for marriage, but if we started there, because it's inevitable, it's going to happen, you know, you can't take two people you know, who have different personalities and genders and, and all these things and, and expect that they're not going to bump into each other, that they're not going to, you know, have conflict. They're not going to hurt and, and, and wound each other. And, and, and the problem that I see is that so many people are, you know, are afraid to go through conflict. They avoid it. They sweep it under the rug. They, they, they want to ignore it. And and the truth is that conflict can be used in our marriage to strengthen our marriage. That's when I get to learn more about my wife, her feelings, her needs. I get to learn more about myself. You know, and, you know, maybe it, it shows something's going on in our marriage that needs to change. I mean, conflict really is a good thing. If we can learn how to do this in, in, in a healthy way. And, and
1: this is so key because what you're suggesting then, Dr. Smalley, is that, in, and oftentimes we'll couch this in terms of, well, I can't get along with my wife because, and we, you know, we'll pile a bunch of baggage there or, or the husband, whatever the case might be, suggesting that there's some sort of a, a personality defect here. But what you're really talking about, and I took note of the fact, you didn't say avoid conflict. You said manage it, right? Be able to work through it. So this isn't a, a personality defect, it's a skill deficit.
0: Right, absolutely. Yeah, because I think a lot of times we use the phrase even conflict resolution. I don't know about you, but I don't think the goal is to try to figure out some resolution so much as it is the process. Can we develop a process that we can use anytime conflict comes up? So whether we resolve it or not, it's not the issue. I think it's how we do it. And unfortunately, most couples do this in a way that just doesn't work. And one of the biggest things that I see with couples is that we're taught to when we get into an argument, when we get hurt, when there's a problem, that we need to just hang in there and power through it and try to talk it through. And I think that is the biggest and worst advice that you can, you can give a couple. Because one, I don't think it works. When, when you're hurt, when you're wounded, when you're upset, when you're frustrated with your spouse... What I think is going on is you get these buttons of yours, these emotions get pushed, these buttons get pushed, and then your, your heart literally kind of closes. You shut down, and then you just start reacting. And, and, and in that mode, there is no way that you're listening. You're not able to hear. You're not able to understand. And that's why when people are in an argument, they need to kind of separate from each other. They need to take a break, a time out from each other. But I'm telling you, Craig, we're not taught to do that. We are taught to try to power through it. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. I mean, it's, it's setting people up for massive failure. And that's really what, what I did in the book was to try to show you, here's a process. Because I, what, what I love is that if you take a break and work on you first, you need to learn how to get your heart back open. Because when people have open hearts, we're able to talk all
1: day long. And this is so key because you know I would imagine in in your role as executive director of the Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family, you're hosting a nationally syndicated radio talk show. You've got patients. You've written books, the whole nine yards. Yeah, that you talk and hear from people all the time. This whole issue of conflict. It sounds to me that this is this is perhaps then less about conflict. In the end, it it's not this major difference between the two of us. In fact, we both both sides of the marriage really want the same thing don't we that yep. is to 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 the, the right to be heard and the need to hear
0: right we want the, you know people want connection we want we want to be connected we want intimacy you know we, we want to be heard understood listened to like you were talking about and it's a sadly what happens is that in that moment that we're hurt or in conflict or whatever it is that that we 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 are just taught to tr- keep trying to to push through that, and 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 it doesn't work. That's why one of my very favorite verses is in Matthew seven two through five. It says, "Why do you look at the dust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the log in your own eye?" And I love that the scriptures give an order. It says, First first get the log out of your your own eye, then you can see clearly." And in how I relate that back to conflict is saying. Okay, when, when you're in the middle of an argument, you have to understand that your heart has now closed. You are shut down. And when you are shut down, you are more likely to, to react, to say things, to do things, to retreat, you know, in, in a way that, that's not going to help you get to where you want to be. Therefore, quit trying to talk this through first. That's part two. Part one is that I need to go off by myself. And, and figure out what is going on. I need to let my emotions settle down. I need to, you know, for me, you know, prayer is such a great time to, to just to settle down, to get God's perspective, to say, hey, God, I don't know what's going on, but boy, I'm, I'm mad about something. What, what, what is the button that got pushed? You know, what, how, how do you want me to, to treat my wife? You know, you created her. Help me to understand her. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, if you work on you first and gets your heart back open, see, then you can come back into that conversation. And and I promise you, it will go so much differently. We fail at communicating through conflict because usually both hearts are closed, and and you just can't talk through that.
1: And so often, though, we also, uh, Dr. Smalley, put so many expectations and demands on the other that we can't control, and yet what we can control... We do nothing with. So if we're concerned, for example, about the fact that we feel as if we're not being heard, our spouse is not hearing me, and yet we've closed down and we're so focused on what we're not getting that we ourselves are not hearing our spouse either. Right. Well, one is an observation, but the other is something that I can actively change and that I have 100% control over.
0: Totally. I mean, that's, again, I can can control me. I can choose how I want to show up. And, and, and that's why I, I say to people you've, you've got to have a break you just got to step away tell your spouse you know what right now I can't think clearly I'm shut down I'm going to go but I'll be back and, and, and that's I think that's the, the, what we do to then set up the opportunity to really to work through conflict if I can get my heart back open see now I'm I, and I tell people you, well, you know how your heart is open is when you want to be a listener when you are willing to be a listener, I love in the in the Chinese language. There's a, the 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 character, the symbol for the verb to listen, is made up of three kind of little characters that come together. One stands for eyes, one for ears, and the other for open heart. Isn't that cool? Mm. So to to listen is with your ears, your eyes, and your open heart. That's the evidence to me that you're ready to enter back into that conversation, that dialogue with your spouse when you are going I want to I want to seek to understand you rather than me being understood
1: Dr. Greg Smalley is with us today he of course Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family information too on the web at SmalleyMarriage.com we'll take a brief time out come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline with Dr. Greg Smalley continues here on KFAX
0: and now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts
1: And welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts, along with our special guest in this edition of the program, he's Dr. Greg Smalley, Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. He co-hosts Everyday Relationships and is the president and founder of the Smalley Relationship Center. You can get more information on the web, in addition to information about his more than 40 books on the topic, at SmalleyMarriage.com. That's SmalleyMarriage.com. But Dr. Smalley, just before the break, we were talking about the need to to kind of step back from the conflict instead of just trying to pile through, because that piling through process often means just making a lot of noise, uh, working a lot, very hard to be heard, but not really hearing. Right. Um, and you made mention, I found it fascinating to, toward the end of the last segment about the Chinese character for hearing that has to do with both open eyes, open ears, and an open heart. So I guess it's kind of pulling back, moving into neutral corners, so to speak, and taking account. It's amazing how many arguments will, will suddenly build up and gain momentum, and that train is heading down the track with, with no brakes. When we take a moment to step back and really ask ourselves the question, what is this all about? We either find out that there's a whole lot to do about nothing, or that it's connected to some other hurt or pain that happened in our life that, that might have just been sort of reactivated by something that our spouse did or said.
0: That's right. That's right, and that's why I, I'm, I'm telling people that that usually it's not that we can't communicate, that we've got to learn some new communication method. I'm telling you, the problem of why we have a hard time communicating is when your heart closes, you've got these buttons that are all stirred up, and you're frustrated, you're shut down, you're now in a reaction mode, and that's why the the, the biggest, most important step in learning how to communicate through conflict, is you dealing with you. And you can't do that in the presence of your spouse. You really do need to step back. And, and that's why I always tell people when you're sort of in this time-out spot, what you're trying to do is, one, there, there is power in putting a name to how you're feeling. And again, when we're in the middle of a conflict, we're not even able to think about how am I feeling right now and put a word to that. And, and yet there's research that was done that showed that when in the middle of an argument, when people separate and they, and they think through, okay, what is it that I'm feeling right now? I'm feeling, you know, devalued, disrespected, uh, uh, not good enough, like a failure. I mean, when you put a word to how you're feeling, it, it physiologically calms you down. It, 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 they see on these, these brain scans to where the, the amygdala, which is your fight-or-flight center, it's kind of the emotional part of your brain, brain is all lit up. When you identify how you feel, the, the brain scan showed that, that all of a sudden that information moves to the prefrontal cortexes, which is how, where you make good decisions. Mm. And so even, even the act of simply going, all right, I'm separated now, I'm on my own, what, what yeah, what how do I feel? What is what's the word that I would use? It just it has tremendous power. It's that simple. And then I I think as Christians what's so cool is that we take then those emotions to the Lord and we're asking for his truth. What is true about me? Is it true that I'm a failure? Is it true that I'm being disrespected? What's true about my wife? You know, and and I and I love that there's so I think there's so many verses that that talk about how how, how you know, God is truth that He gives us the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth will lead us to all truth. You know, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that's what I I love. You when you're then able to do that, you now can come back in and just do what you were born to do, which is you can talk through things with your spouse when you're calmed down and your heart's open. And it you know at really the end of that simple.
1: And at the end of the day reopening those lines of communication or sometimes establishing them for the first time, as much as that seems to be uh, particularly intimidating, particularly for us guys that don't do a real good good job emoting, uh, and we, we, we get very intimidated by this idea in that sense that, well, my wife does all the talking and I do all the listening things of that sort. You've put together a list of five daily relational moments that I think, Dr. Smalley, really go a long way toward... Teaching us just how easy it can be to communicate at that level, so that the needs are getting met by by both sides of the of the couple. Take a moment, if you would, in the the four three or four minutes that we have left in our conversation, just walk us through, if you would, these five daily important relational moments.
0: Absolutely, you know, I, in, in, in why I think these moments are so important is that I think you could. You can kind of boil everything down to doing this. If you want to have a great marriage, you need to, one, learn how to manage conflict well. But then on the other hand, you've got to learn how to invest, proactively invest in your marriage every day. Marriage doesn't have cruise control. You can't set a setting and think it's going to be okay. So as long as you're managing conflict, investing in your marriage... I mean, I'm telling you, you're going to have a good marriage. And I think one of the best ways to invest in your marriage, is instead of adding all kinds of new things to your already busy plate, you know, because, Greg, I, I see that, that so many people are just are so busy, exhausted, worn out, too much going on, overflowing plate, that when I tell people, hey, instead of adding, you know, five more things that you need to do now for your marriage, what if we just looked at what's going on every day? And take advantage of those. Use those everyday moments to strengthen your marriage. For example, every day you're going to leave, leave the house you know, during the work week. How you choose to leave your home can either strengthen your marriage or take away from your marriage. And, and, and what we know is if you take a moment and just, you know, let's say you, you pray for your spouse, you encourage them, and, and, and give each other a kiss goodbye, that right there, you've strengthened your marriage. That should take no more than 10 seconds. You're not adding something else. You will leave the house. How you choose to leave can, can strengthen your marriage. You're going to return home. You know, you, how you come home and re-enter your house in the evening can be used to strengthen your marriage or not. So when I come in, do I beeline for the TV? Do I beeline for the kids? Or do I walk up to my wife and say, hey, great to see you. You know, love you. Give her a kiss. Can't wait to spend time with you tonight. You mean know, just something that simple. Again, not add, you don't add anything. You're going to walk into your home. Just walk in, into your home in a way that's going to strengthen your marriage. Every You're going to fall asleep at some point. How you say night to your spouse can strengthen your marriage. Simply taking 30 seconds to pray for your spouse, to thank him or her for something they did throughout the day that you appreciated. Thanks for hey picking up my dry clean today. It was a big help. I mean, you see what I'm saying? It's just, it's it's identifying some key moments. You know, during the day as we're gone, you know, can I not send a quick little text message to my wife? I mean, I've got to be gone. Why not just send her a text message and, and just tell her, I love you, thinking about her. I actually did this the other day, and accidentally, I mean, I got into sort of this, this crazy little message to my wife. Send it to my boss <laughs> by mistake. And so he texts me back, going, "Please tell me this was meant for your wife." I
1: love you, thinking about you. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. No, it's for you. But uh, that made our meeting awkward. But anyway, (laughs) but you see what I'm saying? I mean, there there are moments. You know, for you, the moment might be um, we're we're taking our kids to their sporting practice. You know, well, can you use that to, to ask each other questions? You can listen to the radio. You can do a bunch of stuff. You can be on the phone, or we can ask each other. Just some some great questions, Hey, you know what you know how today go? How are you feeling? How are things going between you and the kids? You know what's one thing God teaching you as of late? You see, there, there are moments that go on that I think most of us just let these moments go by and, and, and let's take those back and use them as things that can really strengthen our marriage.
1: And of course, the irony is it doesn't take a lot of time, It doesn't take a very little min, min, minimal amount of effort. It's simply giving a greater sense of importance to our spouse, to a sense of honoring them and valuing them. What's the old saying? It's it's the little things in life that count. And it would be amazing to see how far, and I would just, I want to challenge both the ladies and the men in the audience. Try it. Oh, you don't understand how difficult things are in my marriage right now. Purpose in your heart today to start tomorrow. When you get up in the morning, compliment your spouse Honey, I'm glad that uh, you're my spouse. I hope you have a great day. Um, Speak words of encouragement into their life as... You know your husband is going off, and you know he 's got the big meeting today. Say some words of encouragement. Stop at the door for a minute, guys before you 're leaving and saying honey. I know it takes a lot of time and energy to to maintain this household. I know you 've got a big agenda today you 've got to take the kids to soccer practice and you 've got a doctor 's appointment you 've got to go shopping and all these things. I just want to let you know I value you and I recognize and appreciate the hard work that you do in creating such a loving home for us. Wow, how far that will go. And then, as Dr. Smalley points out, look, even the guys, we got time to check the box scores in the middle of the day. Send a quick text. Try not to send it to your boss, though. <laughs> and, let, and let your spouse know, thinking of you, babe, I hope you're having a great day. Can't wait to see you tonight. When you arrive back home, pause for a moment. You realize that your spouse, if she's been home all day, uh, maybe young kids in your family, she have been really deprived of any adult communication. She's, she's eager to connect with you. You, on the other hand, you've been out in the working world all day long. You don't want another conversation. Find a moment, if you can, between the two of you to just acknowledge each other and each other's needs for a moment. And then, finally, as you end the day, uh, to show a sense of gratitude and appreciation, a moment in prayer together. And if you implement these steps, I think you'll see an amazing turnabout in your marriage relationship. Dr. Greg Smalley, Executive Director of Marriage and Family Formation at Focus on the Family. More information, too, on the web at his website, smalleymarriage.com and Dr. Smalley thanks so much for the time today
0: Oh Craig my pleasure thanks for all that you're doing to encourage marriage
1: You bet, keep up the good work on your end as well there's Dr. Greg Smalley from Focus on the Family